I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about Afghanistan and about a whole host of things, including politics today, we have with us Amy McGrath, who has a new book out just out this August called Honor Bound, An American Story of Dreams and Service. Amy, it's an honor to have you here, and thank you for your service. Well, I appreciate that very much, and I love CSIS and what you do. It's so important for our country and really for the world, so it's great to be with you. That's that's really nice of you to say. Amy, I got to ask you, what, what prompted you to, to write this book? This was a project that I started after the congressional campaign for U.S. House in 2018, and it was really a way for me to do some self-reflection as to why it is that I left the military and, and a, a really fun, exciting career to move home to jump into politics. And how, how did that happen and why? Looking at the American values and what prompted me to, to do that. And as I started to pull the string on it, I started to recount how I grew up and what the experiences I had in the military, and I started writing about it. So the memoir came out of that sort of self-reflection time. And then when the Senate campaign started in 2019, I really couldn't finish the book. So I needed some help to kind of put it together, to put my writings together and to kind of weave it together into a format that, you know, became a book. And we finished it. I actually wrote the last chapter right after January 6th. So that was pretty interesting time for our country. And here it is. You've been outspoken on January 6th. What did that day mean to you? I think it was, for me, another wake-up call in a sense that I had felt like I had done you know, all that I could in the races that I ran, and I'm very proud of them. And they, I think, were important and made a difference for our country. But this is going to be a long fight and a long journey to make sure our democracy is protected and defended, which has been the story of my life. You know, I'm somebody that believes in defending this country, and that's what I've spent my entire adult life doing, and I'm still doing that. I think January 6th reminded us that democracy is hard, and it reminded me that, you know, politics isn't somebody else's job. It's all of our jobs. My generation, we have to be responsible about what is happening to our democracy. And we had an insurrection where our capital was breached for the first time since 1814. We have to take a step back and find out why this happened, the disinformation, the misinformation. We have to hold leaders accountable for those people who are perpetuating this lie that caused this and commit ourselves to serving this country and making it better so that something like this never happens again. That's what it showed me. Now, Amy, you ran as a Democrat, but you're somebody who really is, you know, by all accounts, a centrist. You're somebody who is known to have the kind of politics where you could reach across the aisle. You're somebody who is, you know, from a state that, you know, has voted Republican often, but you have a Democratic governor. What is your assessment of the polarization in America today? Because, you know, clearly January 6th, there a lot of that played out. The polarization played out. But, you know, the polarization in our country isn't something that's new. It's not. 
you know, my mantra was always country over party. That was the most important thing. I always left my stump speeches, both the congressional and the Senate, asking voters here in Kentucky to, if they remember one thing about me, remember this, I will always put my country above my political party. And I just think that was such the opposite of who I ran against, particularly in the Senate race. And I believe that that's the kind of leader we need for the future. And we are polarized. I think a lot of it has to do with disinformation and misinformation that is being perpetuated and propagated by a side that believes that it is in their interest to lie to Americans and to, you know, continue to do that. And that's extremely sad. I think the only way to fight it is to continue to stand for the truth and continue to support leaders who believe in this country over their political party. That's just been my opinion from the very beginning. How are you going to stay active in politics now, you know, after the the race was over in 2020? And, you know, I know you're busy with a lot of things. You're teaching at University of Kentucky now, which is exciting. But how are you going to stay active in, in public discourse? Well, I'm really excited because I have a number of initiatives that I started here in Kentucky. And one is called Honor Bound, a 501c4 organization. It's the same title of my book, but it's an organization to inspire and support those who have served this country, not just in the military, but in any capacity. So FBI, CIA, that sort of thing, to pick up their pack again and run for political office, because I think they are the kind of leaders this country needs, people who have proven that they've already been able to serve and and put the country ahead of themselves and their party. And I'm primarily focusing on women and women veterans, but really it's an organization that will help get people launched and the types of leaders that believe in things like character and integrity and honor. It's a nonpartisan organization, you know, so something that somebody like John McCain would be proud of, I I would hope. So I've got that launched. I also have Democratic Majority Action, which is a a super PAC that I started after the race in November against McConnell. When we did not win that race, we rolled our entire finance operation over within 48 hours to help the Georgia races in their runoff, the, the Democratic nominees for Senate there. And we did really good work. And boy, That made a difference for our country, don't you think? We now have a Senate in which uh, President Biden can work with. So I think that was really important. And I I still have that going. And what it does is it's going after those members of Congress who, um, in my opinion, voted against our country on January 6th. So that is also something that I'm working on, as well as teaching national security policy at the Patterson School, University of Kentucky Patterson School. It's a graduate school of international diplomacy and international commerce. So I'm really excited about that as well. And, you know, I just came out with an op-ed that is in USA Today with uh, Michael Hanlon talking about Afghanistan and the fact that, you know, we've got to look at the bigger picture in terms of our security here, that our veterans and their sacrifices were not in vain, despite the tragic events you're seeing right now in Afghanistan. So, you know, I'm trying to stay active. I certainly hope that I get a chance to serve this country in some capacity in the future. And what that might be, I don't know yet. Well, that's all exciting. And big shout out to Mike O'Hanlon, who is my friend over at Brookings and my neighbor. He's literally around the corner from me right here in Bethesda. So big shout out to Mike and good on that op-ed. I wanted to ask you, you've thought a lot about red America. You've run in a red state. 
But have you thought a lot about the left wing of the Democratic Party and what that means to for Democrats and particularly for centrist Democrats like yourself? Well, you know, I think it's important. And one of the things I love about the Democratic Party is that we are sort of a big party and we have lots of different viewpoints. And I think by and large, we respect each other's viewpoints. You know, I, I really like the fact that, you know, when the far left brings up things that we should all be talking about, like, you know, the excessive debt that, that our, our college students have taken on and how that hurts our economy and hurts our young people. I think that it's important because those issues are raised. At the same time, I'm very much a, a pragmatist. I want to get things done. I do believe that the base of the Democratic Party, as I think David Brooks has said, is Joe Biden. That's certainly the base here in Kentucky. We, of course, have a big party here in Kentucky, but you know, a lot of people are what I call common sense Democrats, and they want to solve the problems that we face. They want to move in the right direction, but we, we have to do it in a, in a way that makes sense, in a way that can actually be achieved. And so that's kind of where I feel like the Democratic Party is. And I, I also like to point out to people that, you know, in 2018, when Democrats took control of the House, you know, they didn't take control of the House with really far left candidates. We took control of the House with, by and large, moderate, many veterans who had run uh, who had served the country in purple districts and who are very, very much common sense, folks like Mikey Sherrill and Chrissy Houlihan, Elaine Loria, Alyssa Slocken, Abigail Spanberger, Jason Crow. These are all amazing Americans who are actually in Congress right now doing tremendous work. They may not be the loudest, but they are doing amazing work and we need more of them. You know, it's amazing. There was a study done recently that showed that on cable networks, the only guests that really ever get on are people on the far right and the far left and really nobody in between. So the Abigail Spanbergers and the Slotkins never really get on the air unless there's something you know, so specific to what they're working on. They're hardly ever heard from you know, in the media. Yeah, it's, and it's a real problem, particularly with those because they have such credibility. I mean, with, just in terms of national security issues, all of them do. And so I just feel like I wished, you know, and I can't control the media. Obviously, they, they look for, for ratings and, and all that. But that, I believe, is the core of where most people are. I think the country is, set, is still in the center. I think it, the country leans sometimes center left and sometimes a little center right. But the core is the center. And but the center is not always the loudest. And I think what what I'd like to do, and there are people on the right working on this right now as well, is to try to make sure that we have support candidates who are in the center to be able to win primaries, because I think that is where we need to go in the future. We just can't keep having a, uh, a massively polarized Congress that just doesn't get anything done. So I have to ask you, because we're all hyper-focused on Afghanistan right now and with good reason. You spent a lot of time being deployed in Afghanistan. I think you flew 89 missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. But can you shed some light on your overall experience in Afghanistan? Sure. My first tour was a was a flying tour. And so I wasn't on the ground very much and didn't quite understand the conflict from the ground perspective. 
My second tour there was in 2010, and I, I did a lot more on the ground. I was mostly on the ground. In fact, I spent one month in Parwan province as a member of the detainee review boards, which are basically uh, American military officers trying to decide the fate of Afghan detainees, people we had picked up on the battlefield who were trying to kill us or implant an IED, for example. And what I learned in that process was that, gosh, th this conflict is so complex that most of these people, they're survivors, you know? We come up and we grow up here in America where sometimes we think of war as a black and white issue, friendly and enemies, and, and there's no in-between. And in Afghanistan, you know, the, the people there are, are very much survivors. They will be with you if it helps them and their families survive. They will be against you if it helps them and their families survive. And it's not a personal thing, and it's not that they're anti-democracy or for democracy or anti-America or any of that. It, it's very much, you know, they're just trying to live. And it's so it's such a tough place to be. In chapter 14 of my book, I talk about how conflicted I was in that second tour, especially after I lost somebody who I had worked with right alongside for five months. And his death, um, another fellow Marine aviator, was shot down by an RPG. And I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't, you know, I found myself not being able to explain to his family why he died. And that's when I really had a lot of problems with us being there because it didn't seem like the people there wanted us. It didn't seem like we were making headway in terms of trying to build the nation and build the institutions that were going to last. And here we are. That was, that was 11 years ago now. And here we are today with this, these tragic and saddening scenes in Afghanistan with the, the Taliban taking over. This is absolutely the worst case scenario that any of us could have imagined. What does it make you think that, you know, when you see Kabul now falling to the Taliban, you know, Kabul having become once again a cosmopolitan place where women and girls can be educated, can, you know, go about their daily lives free of wearing a burqa, you know, free to do what they want you know, with their lives, whether it's just go to the gym or go to the supermarket, you know, just normal everyday lives. Now, you know, overnight, seemingly that's going to, you know, not be the case. When you look at this, what do you think about our, our 20 year experience there? And do you think Americans are going to place any blame on Congress or this administration or past administrations for, for this? Um, it certainly doesn't feel like a victory for us. It's not a victory. There's no doubt. This is this is not a victory. I think an important point that needs to be made, whether it's veterans like myself who have asked, you know, was it all in vain? I think the answer is no, because I do believe that the sacrifices of members of the military and their families have made a positive difference for U.S. security. You know, we haven't been attacked from Afghanistan in the last 20 years in any kind of 9-11 style attack. And it's an important point to make. That said, this is still a tragic and sad thing to have happened in Afghanistan. And for those of us that fought there and put, we had such high hopes, for example, for the Afghan women, for freedom, for better education, for trying to make a difference in the positive. And to see that sort of all crumble is just incredibly personally sad for me. And I know for many, many veterans. In terms of Congress, 
there's going to be criticism from Congress. But I'll tell you what, I, I have zero sympathy for any member of Congress that criticizes any of the administrations, frankly, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, because Congress as a whole hasn't been able to have the courage to do its constitutional duty in the last 20 years and authorize or reauthorize the use of military force and our troops over there, their sacrifices and their lives. They haven't done their job. So Congress, in my mind, has no standing to criticize on this. This is tragic what's happening. My hope right now is that we can get our allies and friends out immediately, that we can get the special immigrant visa program, which has been marred with problems and red tape since 2008, get it fixed immediately and bring our friends out of there to safety. I was talking to one of my colleagues earlier, Dr. Seth Jones, who runs our international security program, and he talked about how in the aftermath of all this and, and you know, certainly Afghanistan's history, that it's always been, you know, a playground for the great powers. And, you know, we still have strategic interests there. What do you, what do you think those strategic interests are? Well, I think the strategic interest was always that we want to make sure that there are no places where violent non-state actor groups and organizations like Al-Qaeda can plan and coordinate successful massive attacks on the U.S. homeland again. I think that was always one of the major reasons we were there in the first place. And, and by and large, I think that we have done a good job in that area. I mean, for the last 20 years, we haven't been attacked. I think the Taliban may be taking over Afghanistan right now, but they're going to think twice about trying to attack the United States in that manner again or, or harbor any organization that does. And I think we have sent that message, by the way, to the rest of the world as well. And nobody knows better than you that the Taliban really don't have an answer for U.S. air power. They never did. Unfortunately, U.S. air power is not going to win a war in Afghanistan. And, um, and that's quite clear that we could not bomb our way to victory there. You know, I, I, I think that it's important to have a presence and in some of these places. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's U.S. troops on the ground. Perhaps it's just diplomatic relations where we can get share intelligence with some of these countries. That, and that's why we, we really do need to invest in the State Department and make sure that we keep our promises to allies and partners because to fight the counterterrorism fight worldwide is going to require intelligence. And if we're not actually in these areas, we need people who are so that we can protect ourselves. Does it worry you that China, Russia, Iran seem to be cozying up to the Taliban. I mean, the last time the Taliban were in charge, the only countries that backed them or even recognized them was Saudi Arabia, UAE, Pakistan. Now, you know, almost oddly, you had one of the leaders of the Taliban visiting with the Chinese foreign minister a couple of weeks ago in Beijing. An odd sight to be sure. It is, but I think it's probably natural given our rivalry with China and our adversarial relationship with Iran, that they would naturally go to our enemies, you know, and that's that's kind of the nature of things. But, you know, in terms of us staying there, I think the decision has been made. And, you know, right now we're in the process of just trying to get our, our friends and allies out and go from there. What do you think's next once we do that? Do you think we figure out a way to stay 
present, even though we're not going to have boots on the ground? I think that's going to be really difficult to do with the Taliban taking over. If we have the ability to do that, that would probably be a good thing just to make sure that, you know, the state doesn't go into a state where non-state actors, as I said, can can plot against us. And my hope is that we would have some standoff ability to be able to affect that situation if that came to fruition. But, you know, it would be nice to, like I said, still have some diplomatic relations with some of the countries around there. You know, I was based out of Manas in Kyrgyzstan, and I did that. I've been through there many times. And then my first tour, I did six months there. I know that was a different time in 2002 than it is now, but um, I would still like to see the United States try to maintain some good relations with these countries. Changing subjects a bit and just back to you know your book, Honor Bound, because it really is a fascinating book and a great book for anybody who's contemplating you know being a leader at any level. But what is it like for women in the military now? Is it different than when you first joined the military? I think it is. Look, when I joined at, at the U.S. Naval Academy in 1993, left home here in Kentucky at the age of 18 and swore to defend the Constitution as a, as a plebe, you know, there was something like 12 percent women at the academy then, right around 10 percent. Now it's 33 percent and rising. That's not insignificant. Over the course of 25 years, that's a pretty big jump. And I hope that the numbers continue to rise. I think that would be wonderful. Is it better? Yeah, it's better in a lot of areas, namely because all the jobs are open to women right. than it was before. We, we still have issues, obviously. We still have sexual assault issues. We still have sexual harassment issues. We still have problems and you know, I would certainly like to, to help our military in the future get through some of those problems. Retention is one. You know, I, I have three small children and I got to tell you that probably the most stressed I have been in my 24 years in the military was not in combat. It was trying to get daycare for my first right. time. You know, so it's it's those types of things that the more women who rise in, in the ranks and the more women who rise in the ranks who, who have children and, and more dual military couples, we will start to, I hope, start to fix those problems that will keep the really good, talented women in the military for a long time because their service is so important and they're sharp. But the numbers are up and all of the jobs are open. And boy, that's a, I'm really proud of that. That's a huge success from 1993. You talked about in your book that you always felt like you had to prove yourself you know, even more, I mean, a fighter pilot always has to prove themselves, but you as a, a woman fighter pilot, you, you felt like you, you know, it was double on you. It, do you think that's the same for women entering the academy nowadays? I think there's still some of that. I think it's less. Quite often I was in the Marine Corps, I was the first or only woman in my unit. And I think, you know, that there's less and less of that now. However, it's still there. You know, as a woman, you're, you're sort of, there's always this feeling of, is she the, the token one, you know, and is sure. she here because she's a woman? Is, are they trying to fill a slot? Are they trying to say, we, we could check the diversity box? Is she really qualified? And, and you go, you know, from unit to unit and you always have that, you know, kind of in the back of your mind. The good news is that and one of the things I loved about the military 
was that that may be true initially, but I'll tell you what, the military cares about one thing at the end of the day, and that is, can you drop the bomb on target on time? Can you, can you shoot the gun? Can you hit the target? Can you land the $70 million aircraft on the back of an aircraft carrier at night in bad weather? Can you do it? And if you can do it, you're in, you know? Right. And, and that's what I loved about the military. Right. They're not putting somebody in an F-18 who can't fly it. That's right. I mean, it was about performance at the end of the day. And, you know, and the, and the, the other good thing about the military is, you know, you're not going to get that qualification unless you can perform. You're not going to get the wings on your chest. You're not going to get the rank on your shoulder. So that when you do rise to the level of, you know, lieutenant colonel or captain or, or whatever, you know, you've got that rank. You got there for a reason. So that's that's, you know, people kind of do know that, you know, even if they don't know you. So, Amy, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I thank you for your time. What's the message you want to send to young people who, you know, may be considering a career in public service? I mean, one of the things I worry about so much is that because of our polarization, our polarized politics, the nastiness of our politics, especially over the past, you know, decade, that young people, you know, like your kids or my kids won't want to put themselves through what it takes to run for office. What, what do you say to young people who might be considering careers, whether they you know, be staff careers or, or actually running for office? I would say that if you have the ability to do it and the drive to do it, your country needs you. And is it hard? Yes, it's hard. Is it harder now than it was 30 years ago? Will you be criticized because you've got a D behind your name or an R behind the name? Or, you know, you, you jump into public service, which doesn't pay maybe as much as some, some things in the private sector. Yes. But I'll tell you what, this country was built by people who took on sacrifices and did it for the greater good. To me, that's what patriotism is. And... I just have so much respect for any young person that wants to go and serve their country, whether it's in the military or in the State Department or even in politics, because it's hard. But we have to have Americans to do the hard things. That's that's what my story is about. And that's what I think our future is going to depend on. Our future, the American leadership of the future has got to be based on the young people today that are willing to step up and do this. Amy McGrath, the book is called Honor Bound, and you can get it anywhere you get books. It's Honor Bound, an American story of dreams and service. Amy, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter on a lot of these really, really complex issues. Thanks for having me on. This has been great. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 